0: The preaching of God's Word is Psalm 51, and there are verses 11 through 13. Psalm 51, 11 through 13. There David writes, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Sin ever promises to be a private and secret affair, and if it cannot be entirely covered in secret, it promises that its impact will be rather negligible and little known. And yet, as David experienced, and we must add our own experience to this, we find quite clearly that no sin will ever be secret fully. And no sin is of little impact. And it ought to sober us to realize that there's a day coming when every sin ever committed shall be publicly opened before the whole of the world. And so it's striking, of course, that when convicted sinners are moved by the thought that someone would dare publish their sin to others, they're missing something fundamentally. That there's a day coming when their sins will be openly shown to the whole world. Now, no sin, as it were, no temptation ever comes saying, be sure, your sin will find you out. But every sin has in its very essential actings that relationship. Every sin will be found out. Every sin comes with an injury even to the believer, not to their ultimate undoing, but to their spiritual stumbling. We see that here in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 reminds us not only that no sin will be secret, and that the impact is great, but it shows us what that means. David, who had committed sin rather secretively, is now publicly before us in his sin. And perhaps as he thought, really the impact is marginal, notice it brought about guilt that he couldn't shake of his own accord. It further twisted his own soul, so that not only was he guilty of adultery, but became guilty of murder. And it robbed him of spiritual enjoyment, as you see him pleading in this portion particularly. And it injured and hindered his service to others. Months passed by, and his sin was, as it were, suffocating his calling, both as a king and a prophet, to serve the Lord's people. But notice now the text It really, of course, begins at the very beginning, and even in this section, it begins in verse 10, where he is calling to God to create in me a clean heart. And we treated that last time as it's the primary portion of this petition. His restoration begins with personal renewal. But notice this theme carries on, and you notice in verse 11 that he asks God not to be cast away from His presence. And as he says further, that he would renew a right spirit within him. Verse 10, he now says, "...take not thy Holy Spirit from me." Now, some have taught that what David was fearing was the loss of his salvation. But we have no hesitation in denying that charge because throughout the Scriptures, we see there's no such thing as one who is truly saved being uh, bereaved of his salvation. But we do see something particularly of a king losing his service to others, which was the gift of the Spirit. So you remember, Saul, King Saul, who was not a converted man and yet was given the Spirit of gifting. So the Holy Spirit did gift Saul to serve the kingdom of Israel. When he sinned, what happened? But the Spirit was taken from him, not in a manner of conversion, now he's unconverted, but rather in a matter of being equipped for the service of his calling. And moreover, the many provisions of blessing that the Spirit would provide. And so that's what's bound up in this petition. And you see, he continues on as he says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Notice he doesn't say Restore to me your salvation. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's not one who has sinned away his salvation and now must be brought again into salvation. He's one who's by his sin, has seen the joy of that salvation darkened and his own enjoyment of it lessened. And as he says further, he says, Uphold me with thy free or thy Uh, willing spirit to the end, verse 13, that I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Throughout what's being expressed is a desire of David for the Lord to take him who has turned aside from the high calling he was given both as a member of God's covenant and as a prophet and a king to be restored unto the enjoyment of the privileges that are his, and to the service of God's kingdom. And this actually is helpful for us in a number of levels, ways that we'll see, not least of which is to see one aspect of salvation, or of repentance, is that there is a desire not only to have the personal blessings restored, but to be turned unto the service of the church, which we see here So expressed. Well, we wish to look at this theme throughout this portion of Psalm 51 regarding the restoration of one who had sinned. Of course, there's another example, there are many examples, but there's an example under the New Testament of one who had sinned. You remember, of course, Peter, who was similar to David, given a high calling as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and similar to David, had been given many privileges of fellowship and gladness and giftedness, and yet likewise, similar to David, committed a heinous and wicked sin in denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times, and the third with a curse pronounced against himself. And Peter was by that made unuseful in God's kingdom. And he had, of course, the very opposite of the joy of salvation before him, but he rather, rather had the terrors of conscience and the paralyzing guilt. And so it is how glad we are to see Christ pursue Peter and restore Peter, not only to the, his own enjoyment of fellowship with Christ, but even in that threefold restoration. If you love me, what does he say? Feed. My sheep, go and serve. And see, the same theme as before us this evening. Well, three things for us. Firstly, what is spiritual restoration? What is it that David is ultimately seeking? Secondly, the process of being restored. And thirdly, the benefit of this restoration. So what it is, it's process and its benefit. Well, what is then this restoration that David is seeking? Notice he says in verse 11 that he desires several things not to happen. He wishes not to be cast away from God's presence. He wishes not to have the Holy Spirit taken from him. Verse 12 tells us what it is he desires. He desires the joy of God's salvation to be restored to him, and, as he says, to be upheld by his spirit, his free or his willing spirit. All of this tells us of a great issue that's come to David because of his sin. Sin disrupts and injures and hinders our enjoyment of the privileges and the blessings of salvation. It's important to acknowledge that a true believer Howsoever grievously he or she sins, does not lose his or her salvation. Now, if that causes us presumption, that is a sinful use of that truth. Rather, the assurance of salvation is one of the strongest causes of our allegiance to God. And so, if we start reasoning, well, you know. Christians, believers who sin, they'll never lose their salvation, so I can just go along as I want, is to miss the whole, not just the bullseye, but is to miss the absolute whole target that is before us regarding our calling as believers. For we are called, as we saw in 1 Peter, to be holy as God is holy. And John writes of this tremendous privilege of forgiveness... And he says that these things are written that we would sin not, even as forgiveness, the pardon of our sins, the restoration of fellowship, is meant to lead us to be faithful. But we do acknowledge that sin disrupts this enjoyment. It does not take away salvation for the true believer, but it does take away our enjoyment of that God of our salvation and the benefits of of that salvation. What restoration does, you think of that word, it restores, it brings again those things to our enjoyment. And so David, of course, has been feeling the lash of his sin and he's felt the guilt that is his by his sin. He's sensed the corruption of his nature and he's seen the impact that this sin has had upon his fulfilling of his calling, not only as a Christian, as we would say, a member of God's covenant, but also as a king and a prophet. And now it is he's saying, oh God, I desire these things to be restored. And notice for a moment that there's an essential difference between what David is seeking and what Saul sought. Do you remember when Saul sinned presumptuously and took to himself what wasn't his right as a king, and he took up the office of a priest and so on? And he comes unto the prophet and uh, lays hold of his garment and rips, as it were, it away. And the prophet says, So has God taken away the kingdom from you. And Saul's desire was not restoration, but personal maintenance of honor in front of the people. He says, Yet honor me before the people. I don't want to lose face in front of the people. That's not restoration. That's not a desire of grace. That's not a desire of seeking the glory of God and the good of souls. That's simply the manifestation again of his own sinful and selfish proclivity of wanting himself to be honored in front of others. What David is asking is not for just, Oh God, make me to have honor in front of people, but rather, he who has come to cast his hope upon the mercy of God is now asking that the God of that mercy who has given much and many promises would bless David to enjoy those promises and as we'll see, to the service, the faithful service of others. In other words, this restoration is not merely the personal enjoyment of things that God gives, though it includes that. It's rather restoring us to the right relationship unto God both personally, as those sinners saved by His grace, and in service to others, as we, by His grace, do serve. So, what's been injured? His enjoyment of fellowship with God. And so he says, verse 11, don't cast me away from your presence, don't place me away from your presence. And we might say, well, you know, is that really a petition to worry ourselves about? But think of how it says in the New Testament, think of this expression, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You hear that expression? Grieve not. Now, you can understand something of what's being meant when you ask yourself this question, has someone ever grieved me? Has someone by their sin, their carelessness, their speech, their action, whatever it is, have they grieved me? And we're not talking about the nonsense you know outrage that's so practiced by our culture today where everything's an offense and nothing can be overlooked, but everything must be exaggerated, and the how dare you sort of culture explodes in our world. We're asking rather, have you ever been so clearly sinned against that it's injured your soul, that it's hurt your soul, and you stand dumbfounded by this? Well, if you think of that by our own experience, we know what it is to have that sin of another injure our enjoyment of them. We know this in our marriages, and our friendships, and even in the church and so on. And what happens is not necessarily the ruin of that relationship. A husband or a wife can sin against the other. The marriage stays intact, but the enjoyment of what marriage is is now injured. And the same is true with reference to our relationship with the Lord. It's not that our union with Christ is somehow severed when we sin, but it is the enjoyment of that union that is now hindered. It is, as it were, interrupted. And this is one aspect. Notice further what's been injured, what needs to be restored, the assurance of salvation, the enjoyment of salvation, salvation. So he says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Again, as we said earlier, it's not restore unto me thy salvation, but it's joy. I stand, as it were, in the uh, arena of salvation, but my sin has brought me to be humbled and shamed. Instead of rejoicing in the song of salvation that is being sung around me and hearing its melody, I hear my melody which is at odds with the melody of salvation, and this uh, so uh, causes my mind and my soul grief. And I pray then, restore me to know the joy of that salvation, to hear again the melody of grace and mercy and all of these things which You give. All of this, of course, comes to us from God. And we ought to remember, this is primary, right? Our relationship with God is not our coming to Him, It's His coming to us. Our relationship with God is His drawing near to us and lavishing upon us His rich mercies. But again, as noted, service to others then has been hindered. And this is sought to be restored. And who is it that restores it? Well, it's not so explicitly stated, but it's clearly stated in the petitions. God is the one to whom David is speaking. You see this back in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And it's this God to whom David continues to pray, Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. And so restoration is God's restoring to the penitent sinner the rich blessings of salvation to be enjoyed. It's not that he's restoring salvation, but rather the salvation that is his is now being restored in its enjoyment. And as if you can think of it, the flow of those graces are renewed to the intake of the soul who has been hindered and injured by his own sin. Well, what is the process then secondly How is it that God so restores? Well, it starts, as is so frequently the case, with first being taught its departure. In other words, the process of spiritual restoration begins first with realizing, personally, I need to be restored. You see, there was a season, it seems anyway, when David, for months, was in this position of needing to be restored but was either through his blindness or through his you know, hard heartedness not acknowledging his need. So he had, for a season, committed the adultery. He had, for a season, sought to cover it up. And he had, for a season, then after her husband was murdered, uh, taken Bathsheba as his own wife. And he thought, perhaps, everything's okay. I've gotten through this. And now it's just life as normal. But what happened? in order to get David to this point of crying out for restoration. What happened was Nathan the prophet showed up and pointed out David's sin and said, this is the problem. You're the man who has committed this sin. Think of this, brethren. If there's one thing our culture doesn't want to hear today is that it stands guilty before God. It's happy to hear others stand guilty, It's happy to hear general vagaries of, well, everyone's a sinner. But so soon as the finger of God's law comes and says, this is your sin, the whole thought goes, well, who are you to come to me? But I want you to see what the Scriptures are linking and uniting. It's not until we come face to face with our guilt and our sin that we will ever then be brought to the position and the posture of one who is then seeking the restoration of all of the blessings of God's grace. The process begins with conviction of sin. The process begins with our understanding we have departed. And not in some casual and different way. Yeah, you know, everyone does wrong. You can talk to anyone on the street and everyone's ready to admit that no one's perfect. But then the use of that is, what's the big deal about me? No one keeps God's law perfectly, so who cares? That, whatever that is, is not conviction. Conviction shows up like in David's life. Conviction shows up and displays itself through the casting of ourselves before the Lord for mercy. It's similar to what we've been reading in Luke 18 with this publican who will not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven but smites his breast and cries out, God, Be merciful to me, what? The mistaken one? The one who just sort of accidentally did this or that, you know, made others, I'm sorry that I disappointed you, I'm sorry that you're upset by me? No. Be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, salvation begins with this conviction, which then brings them into the entrance of all spiritual blessings through Christ and the restoration of the Christian to those blessings comes with the conviction of such a departure. It doesn't at all mean that it's something bitter and, you know, this, this difficult, frustrated countenance. Notice in Revelation chapter two, Christ addresses a minister of the Church of Ephesus. And as he does so, he commends works and labor and patience. Revelation 2, verse 2, their orthodoxy and their uh, oversight. Uh, But notice in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Christ brings his convicting, and yet we ought to see this, loving word to this minister and through this minister to the church of Ephesus. When Nathan stood before David, it wasn't God as it were possessed of wrath and possessed of this uh, invective of cursedness against David. It was actually God in love sending His prophet to convince and convict in order to restore. And you see this with Christ. Why has He come to this one of Ephesus? He calls them. remember therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, and so on. He's calling unto repentance, and thus unto the restoration of all of the blessings that are bound up. So the first step in this is God's convincing us of our departure, howsoever small, howsoever great. But the next in it is, is bringing us, as the whole of this psalm is, and as these passages display as well, to the petitioning of God's mercy. There's nothing in here that testifies of, if you do this, I'll pay you back that way. Even when we get to verse 13, it's not a bargaining arrangement that David's having. He's not saying, well, God, if you do this, then I'll do this for you. Rather, he's showing the link that follows Lord, it would be my privilege then to be restored unto your service. So he's not coming saying, God, well, if you do this, I'll pay you back this way. Actually, verse 13 is a further blessing David is seeking. I desire to be one who is, again, able to help others and to see them restored. And so, in other words, the process of spiritual restoration for the Christian is still one that is founded exclusively upon God's mercy. How does the psalm open? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. If we could both memorize and take to heart what is there expressed in verse 1, we would have with us at all times A clear testifying uh, guidance of how it is we approach God even as believers. We ever approach Him as He is merciful, as He is abundant in loving kindness and tender mercies. So He convinces us and He brings us then to petition in mercy for what? Think of how audacious this may seem for the restoration of the best of God's mercies. You see this in the prodigal son, don't you? The prodigal son goes away, spends his father's inheritance, ends up in the pigsty, eating the food that's fed to the pigs. And he comes to himself and he says, what am I doing? My, ser- my father's servants fare better than I. This is what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I say, i have sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, Please receive me back freely. I'll be your servant. But what does the Father do? He receives the Son who comes penitently. And he treats Him as His Son. He doesn't say, Yep, you're right. You've really blown it. You've messed up. So you can be my servant. I'll still be merciful that way. That would have been been merciful. But instead He kills the fatted calf. He puts a ring on his finger. Gives him the best garment. All of these things. He says, we're going to feast today for this My Son which was dead is now alive. And the Father rejoices. And of course, that's not even a historical happening. It's rather so taught by Christ to give us some glimpse of what it is for God to receive His people unto Himself and what it is for God to lavish again the best of His mercies upon His people. So think about what David is asking. He's asking for the fellowship of God. Cast me not from Thy presence. Never is divorce commanded in the Scriptures. But divorce is permitted for two and only two occasions. The first is adultery, and the second is irremedial abandonment. We can think for a moment of the personal pain, and doubtlessly even some can know that personal pain of one committing adultery. And we can imagine the angst and the anxiety and the shame and all of that, and we would understand One who's been sinned against in such a way, saying, I I can't deal with it, you know, I'm filing for divorce. Brethren, that is a tragic thing, and it is far too common in our day. But it's understandable when one commits adultery that divorce follows. It is astounding when one has committed flagrant adultery for that to be so forgiven that the marriage is restored and husband and wife live together in such unity as to enjoy the fellowship one of another, not just with sort of the putting on of the face toward others, not just the, yeah, you know, we're going to get through this, but through the sincere delighting in one another again. Brethren, that's what's going on here. Don't cast me away, though I'm worthy to be cast away. Don't, as it were, just sort of put me up and say, yep, I'll have you, but have your fellowship with me. Have me to enjoy that fellowship with you. That's a rich request from David who has sinned. He doesn't say, you know, just sort of throw me crumbs, but give me Yourself. Give me Your Spirit by whom I would be strengthened inwardly and by whom I would be equipped to serve faithfully in Your kingdom. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, don't just set me aside on the wall. Don't just put me in the corner and in perpetual time out in your household. But equip me, invest in me, fellowship with me that I would be restored to the faithful enjoyment of You, O God, and to the faithful service of your kingdom, that I would know the joy of thy salvation, that yea, I, who with lips have sinned and body have sinned, would find what it is to be gladdened, so with my lips I praise, and with my body I serve your name. He's petitioning for the greatest mercies there are. Think of how this revolutionizes the convicted Christian. Because we come, and we rightly understand why we come. We come and say, Oh God, I've sinned. If you could just forgive my sins, that would be amazing. And it is amazing. But it's the Lord who gives us His Word which is teaching us to come confidently to the throne of grace. To cry out, Oh God, You whose grace abounds where our sin has abounded. Be so gracious unto me that I would be restored to the full enjoyment of all that you give. You see, there's something in us that says that is unfair. Well, brethren, in one sense we can agree it is unfair in the sense of that's not what David deserves, is it? David doesn't deserve the slightest kindness from God. But when did David deserve it? You don't deserve the slightest kindness from God. When we're those who are brought to seeing as we are given that we are not worthy of the least of thy mercies, when that's our petition, we're acknowledging something. Never in my life have I ever deserved the smallest mercy from God. And so what this helps us see is when we petition for these things, the grounding, the foundation for our petition is not because of our worthiness. It's because of God's promises and His mercy. I will be your God. And all that that entails, all that I have is afforded to you. You can read Hosea And be struck with the imagery that is used there of God pursuing us even in our filth and pollution of sin that He would have us as His own. So we petition by God's mercy for the greatest of His mercies. And we do so not alone, but we by His grace are brought to experience. In other words, being restored is not just requesting it, it's actually then enjoying it. Which, of course, this psalm does not go on to record, but we can see it in David's life, and we can also see it in what follows in his petition, then will I do this, and so on. So the process is first the convincing of our souls of our need for restoration, which then brings us to request for that by His mercy and the full enjoyment of His mercies, which then He brings about by that grace. What then, thirdly, is the benefit of such restoration? We ought not to overlook that there is indeed a personal benefit that we enjoy the King and the Kingdom. That we who turned aside and... What an astounding thing to think of this. David is a king and he knew something of the honor owed to him as a king by those beneath him. And so he was in a particular position to realize the honor owed to the great king. Think of Psalm 110. The Lord did say unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. David knew that relationship perhaps better than we can understand it. And yet... Though David knew this great treason against the Lord, he was seeking the restoration of the personal blessings of the king and kingdom. Not just his king and kingdom, but the king, God, and his kingdom. And so notice, he's brought to, as the Lord would fulfill this petition, enjoy again the restoration of God's fellowship, verse 11, and God's gifting in verse 11 but also the assurance of salvation in verse 12, and the joy of that salvation in verse 12. So in other words, when one is restored by God's grace, they're restored to the personal enjoyment of those blessings of God's kingdom. So everything we read, for instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and all of the blessings and all of the impact that's to have upon our souls When one is restored, they're restored to the enjoyment of those things. Some of us, when impacted by COVID, lost our sense of smell. And some of us had certain scents that we delighted in, and others had certain scents that we despised, and yet, howsoever much we tried, we couldn't smell it. We didn't have the ability to enjoy the fragrance. So perhaps you liked certain flowers, a rose, and you could have taken the rose and you could have placed it right up to your nose and inhaled as deeply as you want, as frequently as you wanted, and yet you would have smelled nothing. Why is that? It's not because there was any less fragrance in the rose. It's not because something in the rose had changed. It's because something in our ability to sense the smell had changed. And the same is true spiritually when we sin. It's not that the blessings of God's salvation have changed, but in our disposition and our acting upon sin, we've been so impacted that we're unable, until restored by God's grace, to enjoy the whole fragrance and aroma of His salvation. And oh, what a blessed thing it was, even in temporary ways, when we started to get our sense of smell back. And we could smell that. It was like spring springing up. And all of the things and the joy and the uplifted spirit just from that sense of smell. How much more when our souls, which have been burdened by our guilt and shamed by our corruption, are renewed in the knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins and the love of God in Christ Jesus and the joy of His salvation, how it gladdens our souls and strengthens us. That's a personal enjoyment. But you'll notice the benefit is not terminated in ourselves, but rather as it impacts our own souls, it then multiplies to others. So you'll notice verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. The word here converted is the same as in verse 12, restore. As you teach me and restore me, then I will teach others and they'll be restored. As one is brought to turn again to the Lord, he's then made useful by God's grace, restored to the enjoyment of his salvation, equipped by the Spirit and so on, to then be an instrument in the restoration of others. And is there not great insight that when once we're convicted it actually makes us compassionate toward those who are convicted you know we wonder at times when someone comes with this like wagging finger and all they are is bitter invective against sins like have you ever been convicted before have you ever been struck by your own sins have you ever felt the weight of your own sin it's not in the fact that you're being strong against sin It's that there's not that willingness to be compassionate and plead lovingly that they would be drawn unto Christ. See, when we ourselves have gone through this exercise of soul, it makes us earnest for the restoration of others. Both for the conversion of sinners outrightly, but also for the restoration of believers who have entered upon seasons of sin. So the benefit is multiplied, right? So in the weeks before us, we'll start to see flowers shooting up and we'll see the leaves starting to turn green and we'll be glad of that. But there's something bigger taking place as well. As these living things are being restored, they'll also be developing fruits and seeds that will then multiply for seasons to come. So this great oak tree that sits outside of these walls will have... The replenishing of acorns that uh, would be planted and, were things not treated differently, would spring up to more and more acorns, which would then spring up to more oak trees and other such things, right? The idea is, as life is restored, even physically, it then has a multiplying impact upon physical life. Spiritually, the same is true, that when a soul is restored by God's grace, It is used as an instrument to multiply the restoration of others because it's reoriented us to the great good which is God and it's made us compassionate toward others and it makes us instruments to, as it were, direct others unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, brethren, as we close, let us do so by seeing what miseries sin brings even upon the believer. And secure this in your mind that every single one of your temptations is a lie. Because everyone promises, you know, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Look what you'll get out of it. You'll get this pleasure. You'll get this happiness. You know, if you spout off in this way, you'll relieve your pressure and you'll be happy in the end and you'll put that person in their place and that'll be the end of it. But in reality, it's spewing out all of this stuff which will then demand perhaps months perhaps years of work to reconcile with that person we don't know well if i look at this it won't be it'll just be a passing fancy and so on not realizing that it's luring your soul into that sin and may take years if ever to be brought out of the entrapment of such sins every single temptation howsoever small howsoever large is a lie in what it promises and in what it denies. Because it promises joy and it denies the impact that it will have upon your life. You can always think of the first temptation. You know, you're not going to die. You're not going to suffer in these ways. This won't bring disharmony. Instead, you're going to be like unto God. You know, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you won't die, but rather, He'll now have a challenger to His throne. And so Eve hearkened to that, deceived by the serpent, Satan speaking through the serpent, and ate. And what happened? And what happened when Adam ate? There was the torrent that was opened up and the eruption of all, every single sin and misery that followed is immediately linked back to that first sin and temptation. Think of that for a moment. It's difficult enough for you and for me when we've sinned and have brought some degree of misery upon another. We become convicted of that, don't we? We say, oh, what a fool I was for that word, for that action, and so on. Think of this for a moment. Eve was told a lie. And every single misery of this world is linked back to her believing that lie. The reality is, every sin comes with chains. Every sin comes with enslavement. Every sin comes with death were it not for God's grace. So see, even as David learned to see, that however powerful the temptation, however temporarily pleasing it may prove to be, it brings about this injury to one's own soul. Brethren, if it is that you have sinned, if it is that you sense, you know, my soul's not restored as it once was, if you would have the enjoyment of God's salvation again restored to you, then here is the way forward. The way is to acknowledge your sins. To acknowledge from whence you are fallen, as Jesus says in Revelation 2. And to appeal to God for His mercy. But brethren, to do so in His way. To plead for the restoration of the enjoyment of all of His mercies. You say, I can't do that. Then you dishonor God. Let's get that straight. In you shooting beneath what God promises and holds forth to you, you dishonor Him. Because God comes to His children and says, I give all of this to you. It's all for you. And we look at God and we say, well, you know, I guess I'll just take the smallest, most meager portion of that. And that would be right were it not for God to say, I give it to you. It's all yours. We would make Him a liar in our treatment of His mercy. And so it is for us to come, to rest on His mercy, yes, to plead by His mercy, yes, but to plead for all of the restoration of the enjoyment of His salvation, because that's what glorifies Him. It is another testimony of His grace. It causes the angels to erupt with praise. Look at how gracious God is! That this One who's turned aside is now restored to all the enjoyment. There's no God like this God. There's no grace like this grace. You see, it is to the glory of God that you come and you rest solely upon His mercy and say, O God, all that You hold forth I come to receive for the glory of Your grace. Yes, for the enjoyment of my soul but also to the service of your kingdoms, that what? That others would be restored and your name would be praised. That the praise of your grace would multiply over and over and over again. You see, brethren, your restoration is but a seed that shoots up to further restorations all to the praise of the glory of of God's grace. Would you stand with me then for prayer?